Hi, I'm David Stoker, and I want to welcome you to the Better Life and Recovery hashtag Hope Dealer Movement podcast. As a visible and vocal member of the recovery community since 2009, I'm frequently asked questions and for advice from people all the time. Some are curious, some are still using, some are in recovery, and some people just care about somebody who's currently struggling with a hurt habit or hangout. If people in my community have those questions, I guarantee that people everywhere are looking for answers as well. We started this podcast to give you answers and support because not only is recovery real, it is amazing. Hope you enjoy the show. So welcome back to another episode of Better Life and Recovery. I'm your host, David Stoker, and today we're going to start by talking about an article that I read in Sober Nation about the 10 skills you need to stay sober during your first year in recovery. And I wanted to talk about those, maybe get uh, some people's feedback, uh, let you listen to some of those things, and see whether or not you agree with them, disagree, and I'll let you know whether or not I agree or disagree. I will say this, that very first year of recovery is where you really start to find yourself, where you really start to figure out who you are. And it can be full of ups and downs. Uh, For a lot of people, there's that feeling uh, of despair, hopelessness. Here I am, and all of a sudden, uh, I'm finding out that I can't hang out with any of my friends, and they're saying that I can't go to all the places I used to, and I can't do all the things I used to do. And that can be really difficult at first. That emptiness kind of sets in. Um, I know that we'll have a podcast. uh, I know we have a podcast that we've already done on Powerless that kind of talks about some of those things. But I think that first year is a time when a lot of people are super vulnerable. And it is real easy for us to get obsessed about things, to try to control things that are outside our, our realm, our scope of control. And a, a lot of people don't know that there's some simple rules. I think there's some that are a lot more difficult, you know, but some of the ones we hear are like, don't date, uh, don't date. What do they say? Uh, I've always heard, get a plant, get a fish, get a dog, wait a couple years to date. But I will tell you, I was one of the people that broke that pretty quickly. I believe I met my wife on eHarmony about a month, month and a half after I got sober and we were dating in person probably three months later. Uh, there was real, one really neat thing about her was the fact that she didn't have a history of substance use. And for me, that was a really positive thing because I didn't have to worry about her relapsing. And there were a lot of the, uh, the problems that I'd had in the past, a lack of trust, some of those things that I never had with her because I wasn't as worried or concerned. So for me, I broke that one. But for a lot of people, it's really important. The reason it's important is for that, especially that first year, I still don't know who I am for sure. You know, I'm still trying to figure out who I am. And I may really like you in that first year, you know, for those first couple months, especially uh, whenever we start dating and I'm new in recovery. But a year down the road, when I'm actually the person I'm going to become, I think that's really important uh, because what may have been really attractive to me in that first three months or six months of recovery may not be attractive to me a year down the road. So it's really important to, uh, I think, sometimes for some of us to stay single. I also think it's important for some of us to stay single because we never do anything in moderation, including relationships. 
So we cannonball right into a relationship before we really get to know people. And all of our attention and focus goes on them when honestly I should still be focusing a lot on me. I still need to figure out who I am sober. I still need to figure out my values, my morals. Uh, and I still need to figure out how to deal with the things that life's going to throw at me. And if I'm wrapped up in a new relationship, I'm not going to be able to do any of that. Um, they say don't make any major life decisions, right? Uh, and that may or may not be a good thing. I think it depends on the person. It depends on where they're at in their recovery in their life. So I would also look at that and uh, kind of kind of run with it or not run with it. They also talk about uh, attending 90 meetings in 90 days. And I think for some people that can be very important. But I also believe that there's multiple pathways to recovery. And for some people, meetings may not be their pathway. You know, I was one of those... Uh, People, I guess you would say, that had a different pathway than uh, a lot of people, especially the people I was around. I was around a lot of people that were traditional 12-step. I would actually say we're a, a traditional 12-step community, and when I got sober, the faith community was just kind of starting to grow. And for me, I found more recovery through the faith community and through my relationship with Christ. You know, um, and there wasn't 90 meetings. Uh, there wasn't a meeting every single day that was faith based that I could have gone to. And to tell you the truth, I don't think I would have wanted to. You know, for some people, I think going to a meeting every single day is the thing that keeps that person sober, period, especially at the very beginning. But it may not be for others, and I don't want to overwhelm somebody. I don't want somebody to do 90 days of something that they really don't want to do. You know, I think that we can do too much of a good thing. I look at uh, like the DWI program uh, in Springfield. Uh, you have to do 480 hours of community service if you're in DWI courts. So what that means is I have uh, back when I was working DWI court, I had guys that were working six days a week to support their family, pay their bills. And then they would turn around and their only day off, they're having to put in an eight-hour day of community service every single week in order to complete DWI court on time. And they had no time with their families, no time to build those relationships, no off days. And by the time they got done, they don't want to do community impact, community service stuff ever again, right? So I don't want to make somebody do something that might burn them out. Now, for some people, it's going to save their lives. For some people, that's amazing. If you're going to use the 12 steps, I think that's a great thing to do is 90 meetings in 90 days. But for some of us, that's not going to be our thing. So, so those are some of the things that a lot of people recommend at first, right? Uh, I also hear a lot of uh, get a sponsor. And to tell you the truth, I got a mentor. Not a sponsor. I mean, at first, I had a sponsor that I worked with. And I worked through the steps, but I worked them on a, on a uh, on the faith based side with Celebrate Recovery. But over time, my substance use is no longer the issue, which I know sounds really weird. But I've always said I never had a drug problem. Uh, you know, if you've listened to my story, know anything about my story? My first memory is being molested when I was three. I grew up in a very abusive household, and. Uh, 
trauma, unaddressed trauma was my big problem. Drugs were the solution to that problem. So when I started using, man, that was amazing to me because it helped me numb and escape and not think about all of the trauma that I'd been through. And for me, that was a huge thing, not thinking about that trauma. Um, It was also a huge thing because for the very first time, I felt like I fit in somewhere. Um, And I was one of those kids that never felt like they fit in. So it was a solution to a lot of the problems that I had. So really, um, once I got past that and started working on the trauma and everything else, then I realized that there were some other things that I probably needed to do. Right. Um, I had a son that was pretty young. I was starting a new relationship and looking at getting married. And I was uh, looking at starting a nonprofit a, a little bit down the road. And what I realized was I didn't need a sponsor to help me not use. I needed a mentor that was a good dad. I needed a mentor that was a, a, a great father. I needed a mentor that had a, a successful nonprofit so that they could mentor me and teach me how to do those things. You know, I've never said that uh, the desires are lifted. I don't believe that I'm cured. I'm not recovered. I'm in recovery because recovery is trying to reach your full potential. I don't believe I'll ever reach my full potential, right? I mean, that, that's literally what recovery is. If you look at the definition of recovery, there's really not even anything in it about using or not using, right? It's living a self-directed life and, you know, striving to reach that full potential and doing those things. So for a lot of us, not using is a huge piece of that. Right. That's something that I wanted to do and help me have a better life. So I feel like I'm skipping all over the place. So let's look at some of their uh, things that they talked about. So here's the thing. Ten things that they talked about in the article. Now, I will say that I do agree with don't date at the very beginning um, unless you're already in a relationship. And I'm starting to see these dating sites come out that are for people in recovery Uh, Believe it or not, there's people out there that don't have substance use problems, that don't have criminal histories that are also available to date from. So even though I'm in recovery, I don't have to date somebody in recovery. I can date somebody that's never had a substance use problem. You know, I found somebody literally at the time I thought she was a unicorn because she's never done drugs, never drank, never smoked a cigarette. But the truth is there's people out there like that. If you find somebody in recovery, that's perfect. But I don't think we have to selectively narrow down our search like those are the only people that will ever want us because I'm damaged goods. Because in recovery, I am an amazing person. I have the ability to do amazing things and impact people in amazing ways, just like they can impact me in amazing ways too. So, but don't date at the very beginning. Like we said, it's really important for a lot of people just because we get wrapped up in relationships and we lose focus of ourselves and the things we need to do. But here's what they talked about. Um, Except that you have an addiction. I think uh, admitting that I had a problem that was taking control of my life and it taken me to places I didn't want to go. I think that's really important. I always say I love drugs. I love the way drugs make me feel, but I hate the person that they turn me into over time. I don't ever want to be that person again. And, and that's kind of the like the uh, gold standard, the gold star, I think, of truly being somebody with an addiction. Somebody that's dependent on something isn't having those negative life consequences. They've just gotten to a point where their body uh, needs it or it'll go through withdrawals. Kind of like me with caffeine. If I don't have caffeine, you know what? I'll have a migraine. I'll be irritable. All those things are withdrawals because my body's become dependent on caffeine. A lot of people are like that with sugar too. 
Now the, 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 the big gold standard, because I have an addiction because I had lots of negative consequences and yet I continued using anyway. So that first step is saying, listen, I have a problem and this is something that I have been unable to take care of myself. So I need to go outside of myself to get help. I think that's a great thing. And you don't have to be in a church or a 12 step meeting in order to find that help or to admit that there's a problem out there that you don't have the ability to take care of the handle all by yourself. Uh, I think uh, this, their second one was practice honesty. I think that's really important too. A lot of times in the past, I would get caught up in this intricate web of lies. And over, I, I, I was to the point, literally, I can remember lying to people when I didn't need to. And I would walk away going, man, why didn't you just tell them the truth? You know, because I didn't even need to lie. And yet I was so accustomed to lying that I did it anyway. It was second nature. You know, I, I would say it was an instant thing, but you know, we always have to have those neurons firing. So I don't think it's automatic, but it's so practiced and rehearsed that it becomes a reaction instead of an action. So in recovery, I decided I needed to be really honest about everything. Um, and sometimes it didn't work out very well. Sometimes it hurt people's feelings. Uh, I would try to be nice until it got to a point sometimes where I couldn't be nice. Like I remember when I stopped and I had somebody that kept coming up to me going, oh, you think you're better than me now that you're sober and you're not using. Oh, and I'd be like, no, I'm not. But I think that I'm on a better trajectory for my life. I think I'm working a better path. And eventually after like the 15th time, I'm like, yeah, you know what? Maybe I do think I'm better than you because I'm actually spending time with my kid and your kid is always with somebody else. Uh, even whenever you have them, you're not really there because you're so jacked up that you can't focus on any time with them. I may only have my kid a third of the time, but at least I'm there when I'm with him. Right. Um, so being honest is really important, especially in the very beginning. Lay a track, you know, lay a foundation of honesty. And when I'm honest and I have that, that foundation, then I don't get caught up in lies. Then I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to sit there when somebody walks up and go, crap, is this the person I lied to or the person I told the truth? Um, avoid high-risk situations. You know, uh, there's that saying in the rooms that is kind of accurate. Sorry, took a drink. Um, where they say, if you hang around long enough in a barber shop, you're going to get a haircut, unless me, unless you're me, and then you're going to get a shave, right? So I would say that's kind of accurate. I don't want to put myself in a place where I probably shouldn't be, and there's a lot of places where I probably shouldn't be. So I need to focus on those places that I, I shouldn't be. Now, personally, I don't like that piece of it. Um, I realize that there's places I shouldn't be, but if I'm working with somebody in recovery, instead of going, hey, what's the places that you should be avoiding? I would rather say, hey, where are the places that it's going to be safe for you to go and hang out? Where are those places where you're going to be able to go and have a good time? Well, who are those people, right? Instead of taking stuff away from people, which I've never liked with the relapse prevention plan, I've always liked a recovery enhancement plan where instead of going, you can't do this, you can't be there, you can't uh, hang around with this person, you say, hey, you know what? 
what do you like to do? Where are some positive places you can go to do those things? Uh, who are the people that are, that stand behind you? Who are the people that support your recovery? Who are the people that always give you good feedback, good advice, and they want to bring you up to their level? And what are the things you enjoy doing for fun? And instead of saying all these things you can't do, let's start giving you, you stuff that you can and places you can go and people you can hang around with. I, I find that really important. So not, not as much avoid high-risk situations, as find yourself uh, positive people in positive situations and positive things to uh, do. It's amazing how many of the things I used to do jacked up that I do now sober with sober people um, who support me uh, like float trips, like karaoke, like, you know, uh, paintball, laser tag. I mean, those are all things I used to do jacked up. And now there are things that I do in a sober environment surrounded by sober people, and I have a blast doing it. So instead of acting like, oh, there's this big bad relapse waiting out there for you, hey, you know what? There's a lot of amazing things, too. It goes back to those sayings I don't like, like that person sitting there going, well, you know, while you're in this meeting, your addiction's outside doing push-ups in the parking lot. That might be true, but my recovery is doing push-ups while I'm sitting here in this meeting. So let's talk about the positives that I'm getting from being in here instead of how there's still all this negative stuff out there. You know, um, I want to make people realize how awesome recovery is and how amazing their life can be. I'm not going to lie. My life is great. You know, uh, and I know I'm surrounded by tons of people that have great lives. And even when something kicks their butt they're still able to lift themselves up. Now they have supports. Now they have interventions. Now they have things they can do so that even if they got knocked down, they don't stay there because that's the thing that kills me. You know, is those people that get knocked down and they stay down and the people that they're surrounded by help hold them down. In fact, sometimes you're dragging them down. So let's avoid those people and let's make sure that we're making time for our recovery. Um, that's their next one. Make time for you and your recovery. Uh, and in the very beginning, recovery is a full-time job. So whether that's going to those 90 meetings in 90 days because that's what you're led to do by your sponsor or whether it is uh, sitting there and working steps, whether it's exercise, meditation, uh, pro-social activities, working, I mean, all those things that we should be filling our life up, right? Home, health, purpose, community, all those different things that we're filling our lives up. We need to make sure we have time for those. And sometimes that's another good reason why we don't get into a relationship because a lot of people, a lot of people don't understand why you have to do the things you have to do, why you have to be the places you have to be. If you are doing 90 meetings in 90 days, it can be really difficult to find somebody that's going to support that and stand beside you. This next one, I think, is one of the absolute most important things to learn in early recovery. Practice saying no. And, of course, automatically people are like, well, if I'm being sober, then I need to learn how to say no to drugs and say no to alcohol. That's honestly not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is learn that it's okay to say no so that you don't overcommit yourself. A lot of times in early recovery, we've let so many people down and not shown up so many times that we feel like we have to say yes to everything so that we're not disappointing people. 
And what I do is I find people that become stressed out, compassion fatigue, burnout, all those things set in. Um, they're not showing up to do the things that they're supposed to do because they, they said they agreed to do three different things that day. And now that I've agreed to do all this stuff, now I start disappointing people. And you know what, man, if I'm disappointing people, I might as well go back out. You know, I might as well just disappoint them one last time because then it's just this once when I go back out instead of every single day. So learn how to say no, learn how to pace yourself, learn how, I mean, I, I have a, a book you know, I call it, uh, it's a calendar, but I call it my life. I have every single one of my appointments in there and I make sure that I'm able to do everything. And sometimes I say no, you know, uh, it was weird for me because I'm so used to saying yes all the time. But recently, uh, actually it was like two weeks ago, I had a, a U.S. representative get a hold of me and ask if I could go into schools with them for a week around the state. And I really wanted to say yes, but when I looked at my book, I already had stuff on there. And there's that part of my ego, maybe, you know, that part of that, uh, that piece of me that sometimes still deals with that imposter uh, syndrome where sometimes I want to be around big, important people because sometimes I don't feel like based on my merit, I, I'm doing enough. And there's that piece of me that really wanted to cancel stuff so that I could go out, but you know what? I committed to these other people. And because I committed to these other people, I can't say no. So saying no is vital. If I learn to say no, I won't let people down, right? Because I won't overcommit. And because I can say, listen, man, I have so much other stuff going on. I'm sorry. I can't do that. Right? Because now I've, I might've said no to them, but now they're not expecting me and waiting on me a week from now to help them. And then I show up and then I'm so embarrassed. I don't even answer my cell phone. Come on, seriously, when I call you on your cell phone after you told me you were going to be there and you're not there, I know you've seen me calling you. I know I've never in my entire life seen you without your cell phone in your hand. And I know that even if you were on the phone, you'd normally call me back, but now you've overcommitted. So learn how to say no. Um, the next one they said is take better care of yourself. And I think that's huge. It's not just those, a lot of it's just those basic needs, actually. We look at like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that very bottom one, food, sleep. And by food, I mean, you know, I, I was bad at that. At the very beginning, I needed to gain 50 pounds when I first stepped into recovery. And I've gained about 150 pounds, right? Because I ate. Oh, did I eat? But I didn't eat the right things. I didn't eat healthy. Um, I, I drank a bunch of sugar, even the coffee. Like now I'm starting to drink either black coffee or coffee with just a little bit of cream. And I'm trying to shift towards unsweet tea and water more. But man, at the very beginning, it was all sugary drinks. And my diet was a lot of fast food. Um, it wasn't me eating healthy. In that first year, your body's trying to repair, your brain's trying to repair. And that takes a while. And we need to give this amazing machine that our skin is wrapped around good nutrition and vitamins and minerals and all those different things it needs so that it can repair all the damage that we've done while we were actively using. So take care of yourself, get good sleep, um, eat well, get out and exercise, right? Three to five times a week, about an hour each time. I, I you know, and, and you can break that up, literally do a half hour uh, walk, 
in the evening and, and after breakfast and after lunch, take a 15 minute walk, you know, but sit there and try to get some physical activity. Also, um, those are some things I've gotten really bad at now, too, and I'm really paying for it. So like I always tell people when they say they want to do something like I do, I always say, hey, you know what? I want you to do what I do, too, but I want you to be better at it. I want your recovery to be better than mine. I want you to know these things going in because I'm going to be honest. When I got into recovery in 2009, nobody talked to me about, so how are you eating? What is your What kind of carbs are you eating? How much sugar are you getting? Uh, what are you drinking? Are you making sure you're getting enough of this? Uh, nobody talked to me about how much physical activity I needed and how to do it. So I'm saying, man, focus on some of those things. Stay healthy, you know, so that you can have a six pack and not walk around with a, a half keg like I have right now. So um, discover how to have fun sober. That's another one that they list. And I think that one's really important. Find a new hobby. Find something that you enjoy doing. Um, go out and do those things that before you used to feel too crappy about or, um, those things that you wouldn't do. I mean, a lot of times I was like a vampire. I wouldn't come out much during the day, right? I mean, I'd be in clubs and stuff at night, but during the day, I, I was racked up doing other stuff. And even when I did get out, a lot of the stuff I was doing wasn't the stuff I needed to be doing. So learn how to have fun sober. It's one of the reasons that I love all of the outside activities that we do through the Recovery Community Center, like stream team floats and laser tag and going to baseball games and going as a group to watch UFC fights live. You know, those things I think are really important. Going to games together. You know, I mean, I'm a Cubs fan. I can't stand the Cardinals. And yet I go to Springfield Cardinal games all the time with friends just because it's fun to be at a ball game. So... That's really important. Next, engage in physical activity. They talk about that, and I think that's really important too. We already talked about that. You know, not only for the reasons I talked about, but also because exercise releases serotonin, dopamine, some of those really feel-good uh, endorphins, um, those feel-good neurotransmitters, those feel-good hormones. Uh, being out in the sun releases vitamin D. It is really crucial for us, um, not just for our physical health, but for our emotional and psychological health, for us to be physically act, active in our early recovery. Um, the ninth thing they talked about was play the tape. And I've also heard this called thought surfing. But basically what that means is before I do something, I sit there and follow it through to its logical conclusion. It's the reason that when it comes to caffeine, I can justify my caffeine dependence. Right? Because let's say I drink a cup of, uh, what the heck is the coffee that I'm drinking now called? Um, anyway, uh, it's uh, death something. I don't know. Um, I wish I could think of it, but it's like 470 milligrams of caffeine in a cup. Uh, and it's amazing in the morning. It actually, uh, well, it wakes me up a little bit. Unfortunately, I find myself quickly having to drink other caffeine later, but I say this to say that if I wake up in the morning and I have my cup of coffee, I know that I'm going to show up to work early and I'm going to be in a good mood with a smile on my face and some pep in my step and be pretty positive. If I don't have that cup of coffee, um, probably no pep in my step. I'm probably still going to get to work early, but I'm not going to have nearly as much energy and I'm probably not going to be nearly as enthusiastic. Uh, now, 
Drugs, on the other hand, man, if I do a line of coke, it's going to put some pep in my step, but I know I'm going to have a needle in my arm before the day's over, right? So if I play the tape through the end, I can see why caffeine is a positive thing for me to do. But um, let's even go with the drink. If I were to, and this is me speaking from experience, this is me speaking, right? This is me playing my tape through to the end. I don't know what it sounds like when you play your tape through to the end. But I know that if I were to have a beer right now, if I were to go somewhere, sit down, drink a beer with some buddies, um, I would very quickly be doing shots. And after I got a couple shots in me, I would be looking around for something in a powder form. And I might even at that point be telling myself, hey, I'm just going to do a line. I'm not going to do anything else. But I guarantee by five o'clock tomorrow morning, I'm going to have a syringe in my arm. Because that's what happens whenever I have that drink. That logical conclusion is I either drink until I black out and pass out or I drink until I find what I need to help me sober up. And that's never a good thing. So playing that tape through the end just means, hey, if I do this, what can logically happen from here? Not just that, but if I drink, you know, like we talked about with coffee, if I drink coffee, I'm still going to be married. I'm still going to be a good dad. I'm still going to have my job. I'm still going to be of value with my nonprofit. Uh, man, if I have that drink, I guarantee you sooner than later, I'm going to lose my wife. I'm going to lose the visitation that I have with my kids. I'm going to lose my job. And my nonprofit is going strip. Hopefully there's somebody there to pick it up which is why I'm building a better board. So if you live locally around Springfield, Southwest Missouri, and you want to be on the board of Better Life and Recovery, get a hold of me because we are building that board. You know, not because some I think something's going to happen, but in all honesty, because I want this to be around to continue supporting people in the community after I die. But yeah, playing that tape through the end is important. Finally, the last thing I talked about was keeping your gratitude list. And if you've ever heard me talk, I think gratitude list is one of the most important parts of my recovery. It's something that I do every single morning. Um, wake up, start some coffee, write down three things that I'm grateful for. And then I sip my coffee for about 10, 15 minutes. And I give thanks to my creator for those three things that I'm grateful for that day. And I try to shift and change the things that I'm grateful for every day. I try to keep a list of them in the same book so that if I ever get super depressed, all I have to do is pull out a book. And here's 150 different things over the last 50 days that I've said I'm grateful for and I'm so happy to have in my life. And as I read through that, it's kind of hard for me to continue to sad sack and think about how miserable my life is whenever I realize all these amazing things I have in my life. And you know what? Some days I'm just grateful because I got out of bed and because I, I could walk into the kitchen, uh, get a get out a clean glass and put water inside of it that I can actually see through. And I'm going to be able to drink without getting something that could kill me. Right. So it doesn't have to be that big of a thing. So those are the 10 things they talked about. And I agree that most of them are extremely important. I would add one. I was a grad student. Um, and when I was a grad student, I did a, a, a thesis and I looked at people who successfully completed or didn't complete uh, family dependency treatment courts. And I looked at their levels of burden and the positive things in their life. And I tried to see what was the 
biggest either th- biggest thing that either said they weren't going to complete treatment court or the biggest thing that said, you know, something that was statistically significant that said that they would complete treatment court. And what I found was the only thing that was truly statistically significant was them having at least a part-time job. If they had a part-time or a full-time job, that was the biggest indicator of them being successful in the Family Dependency Treatment Court program. So I think that's amazing. And I think that that having a job gives us purpose. It gives us money. It gives us confidence. It allows us to have some pride in ourselves for the things we're doing. Um, I'm going to add a few other things. Uh, Learn how to budget. I think that's very important in early recovery. Uh, I know that that was one of the biggest reasons I went back out was because I would have bills pop up that I wasn't able to pay. And instead of paying bills, I would decide, you know what? Um, I know who I can make money really easy. So learn to budget, set small goals that you can complete, you know, um, like maybe saving $10 a week or $25 a week. And whenever you put that money back, feel proud about it. Give yourself big things once a month, whether it's, you know, going on a float trip or, you know, doing something that you really enjoy. But set those goals, but make sure that you learn how to budget your money. You know what? Uh, I always have a problem because I eat out four times a week. So instead of spending 50 bucks eating out four times a week, I'm going to eat out once. But that time that I eat out, I'm going to sit down for a nice steak. I'm going to spend 30 bucks. And you know what? I'm still going to save 10 to $20 each week over what I used to spend whenever I would go out and eat out all those times. So I'm going to pack a lunch, make my own lunch every single day just so that Friday night I can get off work and I can go have a really nice steak at a sit-down restaurant. You know, so some of those things, to me, that's a huge treat, right? And yet I'm spending less money than I would have spent if I would have ate out four or five times that week with fast food. And finally, service work and community service. I think they're vital to recovery. If you're going to a meeting, start doing service work, whether it's setting up chairs, making coffee, unlocking the door, chairing the meeting. Make yourself necessary and useful to the meeting because I'm going to be a lot more likely to show up if I know that I'm going to let people down if I don't. So to me, that's huge. I think that's one of the most important things you can do if you go to meetings. And it doesn't matter if you're going to a 12-step meeting, a smart recovery, a refuge recovery, celebrate recovery, all uh, life ring, all of those different groups have service things that you can do that are going to make you vital to that meeting. So plug in. If you're using meetings as a mode of recovery, plug into those meetings and make yourself necessary. Volunteer. Get there early and stay there late. Soak up. Uh, Sit around and hang out and go drink coffee with the people that are that's actions actually meet their words in a meeting and surround yourself with the positive people that are going there. And finally, community service isn't just something that your probation officer or judge tells you to do. I think uh, community service is one of the absolute most important things that I've done. Uh, Service work made me necessary to the recovery community, but I live in a much larger community And I wasn't doing anything to make myself necessary to that. You know, I was one of those people back in the day, and I've heard other people say it. They're like, what are you doing to make your community better? And I'm like, well, I'm not selling drugs anymore, and I'm not breaking into your house and stealing your stuff. You're welcome. 
that was an attitude that I'd had a couple different times and I'd tried uh, recovery earlier and it never stuck. You know, this last time when it stuck, I started going out and doing things, whether it's a stream team picking up trash, whether it's, uh, you know, we volunteered at the Harmony House uh, helping helping do different things there, whether it's with like their big garage sale or when they moved into their new building. Um, we volunteered with other nonprofits uh, and days of service, uh, going around and sitting at a table at a community event and talking about recovery and the amazing opportunities out there for people. So I think that's also extremely important for us to do. So in addition to the things they talked about, learn how to budget, get a job, Service work, super important. If you're attending meetings, make yourself necessary to those meetings. And don't just stop with service work at a meeting. Start doing community service to make your community better too. Because I want you to have ownership in your recovery mode. Like I said, whether it's a 12-step, smart recovery, celebrate recovery, whatever it is. But I also want you to have an investment in the community you live in. We should be making that community better. Because back in the day, I used to take from the community. Now my community is better because I live in it. And it's better because a lot of you guys live in it too because I see the stuff you guys are doing. I'm reading the stuff you guys are doing. And I'm so glad to see so many of you still kicking tail. In closing, I just want to thank you for listening to the podcast. Please join us every week for new episodes. If you want to connect with us further, if you have any questions, topics you'd like to hear in the future, or maybe you would like to be on the podcast sometime, you can connect with us at betterlifeandrecovery.com. Uh, there's a Better Life and Recovery page on Facebook, or you can, uh, we're on Twitter, uh, B-L-I-R underscore N-P-O. Also, this podcast is part of the Studio DNA Podcast Network. You can find out more about the network at studiodna.media. Thanks a lot. Y'all have a great week. Hey, Studio DNA fans. I'm Chad, a new podcast host here on the network. I'd like to invite you to check out my new show called Hot Takeout, where I mix together some of my favorite things, fast food and musical artists. When you listen, you'll get that feeling you have when you get an onion ring in the bottom of your french fries. It's a win. We'll dig deep with the artists. We'll find out what inspires them and what foods they have to stay away from. And we're also playing fast food games, which will also make sense when you listen. So check out the Hot Takeout podcast streaming right now here on the Studio DNA podcast network.